Well, good morning again. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Crossroads Bible Church. As I said, it is good to be gathered with the people of God. This morning, we'll be continuing in our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3. What we're going to find in our text this morning is that Mark presents us with a clear picture that Jesus is building his church. Jesus is building his church. In Matthew 16 and verse 18, Jesus told Peter, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's a very good Bible teacher down in Florida named Randall Smith. And he said, if you want to know where Jesus said something, you go to the Gospel of Matthew. If you want to know where Jesus did something, you go to the Gospel of Mark. So Jesus said in Matthew, I will build my church. And here we are this morning in Mark chapter 3, and we're going we're gonna to see through the lens of Mark, how is Jesus building his church? So I'd like to invite you to stand with me now and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 7 through 19. I've chosen to read from the ESV translation this morning because I think it, it communicates Mark's idea with just a bit more clarity. So please forgive me, it'll, it'll differ slightly from your NIV. Verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell, to the, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of God. Please be seated. So the first thing I'd like to do is I'd actually like to take another pass through this text that we just read. I'm just going to point a few things out along the way because I think it's going to help us to understand exactly what it is we're reading. So I'd like to draw your attention again to verse 7. We're going to look at 7, 8, and 9 of Mark 3. Mark uses something here in his writing called repetition. 
It's obvious what he's doing. You use repetition because you want to hammer a point home. He's ringing a bell in a sense. He's saying, look at this, pay attention to this, make note of this. So that's exactly what we're going to do. The word that he's pointing to is crowd or great crowd. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. Verse 8, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Verse 9, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Now, why was there a great crowd? Verse 8, the great crowd heard all that he was doing. And what is it that he was doing? Verse 10, he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Picture this with me. This is a wild scene taking place. People had come from everywhere, Mark shows us. Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Everybody wanted to be a part of it. There are people who are rubbing shoulders who normally wouldn't be rubbing shoulders with each other. From the Jews to the Gentiles. From the rich to the poor. From the sick to the healthy. From the religious devout to the demon-possessed. In light of the Super Bowl watch parties that'll take place in a few hours, I'll quote the late NFL announcer, Van Miller. This scene that Mark is describing is bedlam. It is pandemonium. Van Miller once said it is fandemonium. Everyone wanted to be a part of it. And Jesus is like, get the boat ready. These people are going to crush me. And then we read verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. He called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Your NIV translation may say, he called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. Verse 14 and 15. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Why did Jesus call to himself those whom he desired? And why did he appoint the 12? Verse 15 makes that clear so that they might be with him. And so that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So where is Mark going with this? Well, remember, the idea that I believe Mark is communicating, the picture that he's painting, is that Jesus is building his church. And what we find here is a straightforward answer to how Jesus is building his church. He's calling people to himself. Jesus is inviting people to be with him in the kingdom of God. 
It's a call. It's an invitation. You enter into the kingdom of God in response to an invitation. In Mark chapter 1, we read that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So we can see here that God is inviting people into the kingdom by extending an invitation in the person of Jesus Christ to come and be with him. Follow Mark's storyline with me. It begins in chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Jesus is walking along, and he sees Simon or Peter and his brother Andrew in a boat fishing. And he calls to them, and he says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And then he sees John and his brother James with their dad. And he calls to them, and he says, follow me. And they follow him too, dropping their nets and leaving their dad. Mark continues in chapter 2. Jesus is walking along and he sees Levi, also known as Matthew, sitting at the tax collector's booth. And he calls to him. He says, follow me. The text says that Matthew rose and followed him. There's a pattern here. The pattern is that Jesus extends an invitation to follow him, and it is accepted. And then Mark shows us in verse 13 that he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he he desired, and they came to him. So Mark is now painting a picture here of a crowd, and Jesus is calling people out of the crowd. That's the picture that Mark is painting Question, how is Jesus building his church? Answer, he's calling people out of the world into fellowship with himself. Now I'm convinced that there's an even fuller picture here that Mark wants us to see. So I'm going to direct your attention once more to verse 7. Verse 7 reads, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. Now allow your eyes to move down to verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Okay. Again. But this time, let's zoom in. Verse 7 Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, verse 13, and he went up on the mountain. Again, closer. Jesus withdrew to the sea, and he went up on the mountain. Jesus went from the sea to the mountain. If you've been a Christian for a while, you may start seeing something by now. Is Mark jogging your memory yet? Who else went from the sea to the mountain? Well, of course, the answer is Moses. In the Exodus, 
Moses led the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt where they were enslaved by the Egyptians. It was following the tenth and final plague of the firstborn. And Pharaoh rose up in the night and said, up, out of here. And the people of God, the Israelites, they walked out of Egypt and Moses led them to the shores of the Red Sea. And there they were at the water's edge, trapped. And Pharaoh had a change of heart. And now he and his army are pursuing them from the back. And God acted in power, parting the waters of the Red Sea, building a wall on the right and on the left with dry ground in the center. And Moses led the people of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. They reached the other side and turned around to see Moses, or excuse me, Pharaoh and his army, the chariots following them as God brought the waters down upon the Egyptians, destroying them. And then Moses led the people to the foot of the mountain of God, to Mount Sinai. Mark is using a figure of speech here known as illusion. He wants to prompt his audience to think of the mountain of God. But why? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. First, I believe that Mark wants us to realize that Jesus is the prophet like Moses, whom God promised to raise up from among his brothers in Deuteronomy 18. Now remember, Mark was a disciple of Peter, as Rod taught us a few weeks ago. Mark wasn't one of the original 12 apostles, but Peter was. And so Mark would have gotten his information here from Peter. And so I think that we can be confident that this is what Mark wants us to see because this is what Peter saw. This is what Peter understood, that Jesus was the prophet like Moses who was to come. And we know that because Peter says so in Acts chapter 3. Acts 3, verses 22 and 23, Peter's preaching a sermon himself. And he cites Deuteronomy 18 and points to Jesus that he was the prophet like Moses who was to come. Of course, in Deuteronomy 18, when God promises that he would also raise up the prophet, he also said that those who do not listen to him will be destroyed. But I don't think that this is the only point that Mark wants to make. Because verse 13 says that he went up on the mountain. See, Mark wants us to be thinking about the mountain of God. So what happened on the mountain of God? What happened on Mount Sinai? What happened between God and Moses and the people of Israel? Well, we're now in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19 gives us this account, and I think we're going to find a few things here. Number one, we find that God declared that he had brought his people 
to himself. Now, as we go through these, I want you to have in the back of your mind right now that Jesus had gone up on the mountain. So while we see what God did in Exodus 19, that he had declared that he had brought a people to himself, we can also see clearly that Jesus had brought a people to himself. God appointed the 12 tribes of Israel to be his kingdom of priests at the mountain. Jesus appointed the 12. In 1 Peter 2.9, we are called a kingdom of priests. God gave his people an identity and a purpose. Jesus did the same. God made a covenant with Moses and the Israelites, and God gave his law to the people of Israel on the mountain. This context of Moses on the mountain is central to what is happening right now in Mark chapter 3. See, in Mark 3, Jesus goes up on the mountain, and presumably this is where he would have preached the sermon on the mount. It fits, if you think about it. If you look at the surrounding text in Matthew 5, where we find the Sermon on the Mount, and in Luke 5 and 6, where we get excerpts from the Sermon on the Mount, from Luke's autobiographical account, the pieces are in place. It syncs up quite nicely with where Mark has us. But the question is, why isn't the Sermon on the Mount here? See, we just mentioned how Mark was a disciple of Peter. He had the information. We should also mention, in case you're unfamiliar, that the gospel of Mark was the first gospel written. The gospel of Mark was written before there was a gospel of Matthew, or gospel according to Luke, or gospel of John. He had first crack at this. But he didn't put it in. Why? What are we supposed to make of this? Well, I'll tell you the conclusion that I came to. If Mark didn't give us the Sermon on the Mount, then we ought to be paying really close attention to what he did give us. Let's look again at verses 14 and 15. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. That's it? Really? It's kind of a letdown, if I'm being honest. I mean... It's not nothing, but it's not the Sermon on the Mount either. You know, I wonder if what Mark is doing here, 
I wonder if he's pointing at something. And I wonder if that something looks like a tree that's so beautiful and so strong that he was willing to clear away the entire forest just to set our eyes on it. Verse 14, and he appointed 12 so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. I must have read this a hundred times. And the first 99 times I read it, this is how I read it. Send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Two things. Preach and cast out demons. And then I read it again. And I realized this isn't two things. This is one idea. This is about how the message they were to preach would have the power to set people free. So yeah, I think Mark was right. This is big. What we have here is a towering redwood in a forest that's been cleared. A few of you might know that I'm currently in seminary. And a couple times a year, I have to fly down to Florida to attend classes in person. And I was down there on a recent trip, and one of my professors, Dr. Jim Scott Oreck, uh, has been a longtime pastor in Kentucky. He was teaching us, and he told us how he began his preaching ministry when he was 17 years old. And now he's in his 60s. And he said that at some point... In the course of his ministry, he began asking his congregants a question. He would ask them, how is it that you came to Christ? How did you get saved? What was it? Was it a cold encounter with someone on a bus or a plane? Was it, was it a street encounter with an evangelist who handed you a gospel tract? Was it a TV evangelist or maybe a recommendation on YouTube? You clicked on it and the Lord spoke to you. And he said that over all the years, this is what he found. You add all of that together and it accounted for about 10%. And then he asked him this, how many of you were sitting in church when a man was preaching the word of God and you were called? All the hands go up. This is the way God designed it. This is how he's calling people out of the crowd. He sent them out to preach a message that would set people free. 
Now, if you've heard me preach before, and if you've been paying attention this morning, you know that I like to ask questions. And you know that I would encourage you as students of God's word to learn to ask the right questions at the right time when you read the text. So I can't but help ask the question, what was the message they were supposed to preach? I mean, we can't very well suggest that this is a towering redwood in a forest that's been cleared and not ask the question, what is the message? Was it a message of health, wealth, and happiness? You know, you don't need to live with that illness. You don't need to struggle financially. You don't need to stay in that marriage. God wants you to be happy and healthy and prosperous. No, that's not the message. Was it a message of coexistence? Well, you're going to be going out there, guys, and there's going to be Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and atheists, and we need to get along and be at peace with everyone. That's not the message. Was it a message of diversity, equity, and inclusion? Was it a message of social justice and how the world is divided between the oppressed and the oppressors? Nope. That ain't the message. See, there are all kinds of messages that are masquerading as the truth. But there is only one message that has the power to set you free from bondage to sin. Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. Jesus said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The message they were to preach was a message of repentance and belief. In other words, he sent them out to preach God's gospel and, uh-oh, and, what's this man talking about, gospel and? See, if you're sharp, some of your alarm bells just went off. Anyone who starts talking about gospel and you better pay attention. So test what I'm about to say. Is it true? 
Jesus sent them out to preach God's gospel and God's law. What? God's gospel? Amen. God's law? What are you talking about? Did somebody not tell that guy about Jesus and what he did? See, true, the true message that he sent them out to preach included repentance. But repentance cannot be rightly understood apart from God's law. God's law is a representation of God's holiness. God's law is God's righteous standard written down. See, I think what's happened here in the American church is that we have begun to drift on what repentance really is. Just ask somebody, what is repentance? They might tell you, well, you feel bad. You feel bad. Okay. Remorse. Well, that's true. Terribly incomplete, but it is true. So then we, somebody else walks in. They say, no, no, it's, it's, not, it's not just remorse. Repentance is confession. You feel bad, and then you confess. All right, now we're getting somewhere. That's good. That's also true. Incomplete, but True. And somebody else walks in and say, guys, you're missing something. Repentance is not just remorse and it's not just confession. Repentance includes the idea of turning, right? Now, this is someone who's, they've heard a few sermons. We turn, right? Turn, repentance, we turn. We've heard this idea. So now, okay. Good, we're getting somewhere. We're kind of putting this thing together. But then someone else walks in. They say, all right, I got it. You guys are close, but you're still missing something. Repentance includes remorse and confession and turning. But guys, you got to turn away from your sin. Oh, amen. Of course, We've got to turn away from sin. We don't just turn. What does that mean? And somebody else walks in. They say, all right, you guys are on to something. But you're still missing something. Repentance is not just remorse. And it's not just confession. And it's not just turning. And it's not just turning away from your sin. You must turn from your sin. And you must turn toward God, yes, yes, it's good, it's good, that's, that's true. But then in walks this little old church lady. 
And she says, hey, I was just sitting outside the door, and I, I was just kind of hearing this conversation that y'all were having. And it's a good thing, and I'm, I'm so proud of you young, wise Christians. But you're just missing one thing. Repentance isn't just remorse, and it's not just confession, and it's not just turning, and it's not just turning away from your sin, and it's not just turning away from your sin and turning toward God. Repentance is turning away from your sin and turning toward God in faith. And everybody said, amen. Oh, thank God for that little old church lady. But here's the thing, little old church lady. Even that is still kind of missing something, isn't it? Because what we have now is we have this right definition of repentance, but it's free-floating. It's untethered. See, repentance is rightly anchored in the word of God, in the law of God. Until we hear the the law of God, we don't understand why we need to repent. Until we hear the law of God, we don't know where we've trespassed or who we've transgressed against. In fact, God's law is to be held up in front of our faces like a mirror to reflect our sinfulness back upon us that we might look at his righteous decree and turn away because we are so hideous. And this is exactly what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what he did. He held up God's law. He held up God's standard of holiness. Listen. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. One word of truth from God's law in a whole world of men are convicted of their sin before a holy God. Repentance and belief. Repentance and belief. Repentance and belief in the gospel. Now we've had something to say about repentance. About how all people everywhere have fallen short of God's standard of holiness. But the good news is that God has not left us without hope. So we don't just preach the law to convict of sin. We also preach the gospel because we are not without hope. The kingdom of God is at hand, and it is good news to those who hear the call of Jesus and accept his invitation to be with him. 
good news to those of us who, who trust in Jesus Christ, the grace of God to save us from our sin. Jesus is building his church. Is he calling you to be with him? Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you weary and are you burdened? Are you weary of your sin? And are you burdened by your sin? John Bunyan's Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress is so burdened by his sin that he carries upon his back that he is tormented that it will sink him lower than the grave. If you are weary and burdened by your sin, hear his call today. Come, by all means, come. And you will find rest. And you will find mercy. And you will find salvation. Jesus is building his church. Are you part of it? Are you part of it? I mean, are you really part of it? You know, because there's a difference between the people in the crowd and the people on the mountain, right? Because we can be a, we can be a part of something in a sense and not part of it at the same time. Let me illustrate what I mean. Every four years, people gather from everywhere to watch the World Cup. It's the most watched sporting event in the world. In fact, in 2018, over one billion people gathered and tuned in during the final match. They gathered around televisions they gathered in restaurants, and of course, they gathered in stadiums. And when the game was over, all one billion plus people were able to walk away and say, I was part of it. But then you have the players on the field, and they're part of it too, right? but in a different sense. See, the crowd can put on their team's jersey and they can wave their country's flag for a day. And when the game is over, they'll go back to living their lives. And sadly, many of them will spend the rest of their lives telling stories about how they were there that day. 
They thought they were part of it. They witnessed it. But they weren't part of it, were they? That's not the way it is for the players on the field, though, is it? For the players on the field, they're consumed with the sport. In fact, for many of them at that level, it has ceased being a sport altogether. And it's become a way of life. See, it's the players on the field who get the trophy. It's the players on the field, not the crowd, who get the bonuses. It's the players on the field, not the fans in the crowd, who get the accolades. It's the players who, when all is said and done in the final analysis, get to hear those famous words. Well done. Jesus is building his church. Are you part of the church or are you part of the crowd? Let's pray. Father, once again, we come to you in thanksgiving. We have opened your word and we have learned from you that it is your brilliant way that you will call people from the crowd and you will call them to be with you and you will do it through the proclamation of your word. And it is your word who will set people free. And that is my prayer this morning. That if there are any here today hearing this message, Lord Jesus, I ask that you would call them to yourself. I ask that they would repent of their sins and turn to you in faith that they would receive you, receive the forgiveness that you have secured for them through your death on the cross and your sinless life. And I ask that you would set them free. Amen.